Well, if parents so wish, our children can be dismissed at this time. As they are making their way out, uh, please open up your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 29 through 36, as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. So we will begin this morning by reading our passage aloud. So hear now the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 11, verses 29 through 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part of dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Thus far the word of the Lord, if you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, this is a weighty word. So Father, would you help us now to hear it, uh, to heed it, and to believe it. Let's we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, it was early in our marriage when uh, I got up one morning and I made my coffee. I emptied the dishwasher. I closed it up and I was about to begin my quiet time when Alyssa came down the stairs. Now she entered the kitchen She thanked me for emptying the dishwasher. Now, it had been my intention to surprise her with an empty dishwasher. So I remember being a little vexed. Like, how had she figured out that I had emptied the dishwasher? Like, did she have x-ray vision? Was there a hidden camera somewhere that I didn't know about? Or did she just hear me banging dishes around in the kitchen? Like, what was it that had tipped her off to the fact that I had emptied the dishwasher that morning? So I had to ask her, sweet, how did you know that I had emptied the dishwasher? It's closed. To which she smiled and said, Sam, the dishwasher may be closed, but every single cabinet in our kitchen is wide open. And in one of those like world-shattering moments, I looked about the room and realized that she was right. It was clear either we had been robbed or I had done the dishes. 
because every single cabinet was wide open. But up until that moment, I was utterly blind to that reality. Well, whether we realize it or even can admit to it, we all have our blind spots. We all have those things that we are painfully and at times embarrassingly blind and oblivious to. And there's no more dangerous of a blind spot than being blind to who Jesus really is. So do we have a blind spot when it comes to Jesus? You see, our passage this morning is a bit jarring. And if it doesn't unsettle us, if it doesn't force us to consider difficult questions and concerns, we're probably not reading it right. At times, the grace of God confronts us in order to comfort us. And that's what we have here. And what we have in this passage is Jesus confronting the crowds. He's willing to stand in the blind spots of their unbelief. Essentially asking the question, don't you realize who I am? Friends, humanity's quotient for unbelief is a staggering and a tragic thing. Jesus declares that generation to be evil. And I can't help but to wonder, what would he say about us? What would he say about our generation? What would he say about our penchant for unbelief? Particularly the unbelief and the doubt that exists amongst good church folk like you and me. To be sure, our culture is quite adept at manufacturing unbelief. And it does so in many myriads of ways. And you've seen that if you've been attending the Sunday school class, walking through Carl Truman's latest book, Strange New World. Yet our passage this morning is less concerned about culture not taking God at his word, but rather his people. Because sure, it's one thing for the culture to not take God at his word. But it's something else entirely for the church, for God's chosen ones, to hear the truth, yet not heed it. So our passage this morning won't let us avoid this rather, rather unsettling question. How adept have we, the church, become at not taking God at his word? Well, last week we left off in verse 28 with Jesus declaring... Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And what our passage this morning will teach us is that the opposite is also true. That cursed are those who hear the word and ignore it. So as we come to our text this morning, we need to see three things. A disingenuous demand, some irksome illustrations... And to conclude, an enlightened response. So our first point, a disingenuous demand. I'll have a look down at verse 29. For it begins by reminding us that there's a crowd gathering and growing. That the Jesus movement is quickly gaining momentum. Jesus is a rather fascinating spectacle. 
He's doing all of these incredible things, like miracles, like healing people, like feeding 5,000 people with food from a little kid's lunchbox. He's walked on water. He's calmed a storm. He's done all sorts of incredible things. Then there's his teaching. It's amazing the way he teaches and unpacks and explains the scriptures. It's like nothing they've ever heard before. And on, top of that, uh, and on top of that, there are these epic showdowns between him and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Bouts where he always seems to manage to come out on top, no matter what traps they throw at him. See, there's an excitement surrounding Jesus. There's a thrill in the air, and expectations are beginning to bubble up and boil over. Just imagine... Here we have a people who are enjoying the Jesus experience. They are intrigued and interested in following him. Yet Jesus cares more about souls than he does about crowds. So in verse 29, Jesus calls this generation evil. But why? Because Jesus knows that if they are that they are far more concerned with seeking a sign rather than a savior. Previously in verse 16 of this chapter, we learned that while some in the crowd questioned whether or not Jesus was from Beelzebub, from the devil, still others tested him and kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. In other words, Jesus, entertain me. Jesus, impress me. Jesus, show me more. Just don't touch my life. Jesus was essentially declaring to them that he was divine, that he was the Messiah. And to be fair, he was making some rather outlandish claims for a carpenter from Nazareth. So what's the harm in just asking for one more sign, for one more teensy-weensy bit of proof? Doesn't Jesus know the basics of how to market himself? I mean, he's got him on the line. He's got him halfway in the boat. Like basically, all he needs is just reel him on in. What's the harm in doing just one more miracle? Just one more display of his sovereign power and authority. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he never shies away from sincere and inquisitive questions about the nature and character of who he is. He actually seems to welcome those questions and and those things. Yet Jesus knows the hearts of this generation and of this crowd. And he knows that they are a generation far more interested in being impressed by seeing a spectacle than they are in submitting to a sovereign God. For in their request for an additional sign, they are revealing their spiritual blindness. For as verse 34 tells us, if the eye is bad, your body is full of darkness. They may be requesting to just see a little bit more evidence, yet what they are revealing is that they are blind to the evidence Standing right before them. You see, the burden of proof, as they say, has been met and exceeded. Yet the crowd still refused to take Jesus at his word. 
Jesus knows no amount of signs and wonders would ever be sufficient for them to believe. Such is the harrowing and the deadly darkness of unbelief. So let me ask you, does that describe you this this morning? Because into the great darkness of unbelief, the light has come. And his name is Jesus. And he has declared that he and he alone is the savior of sinners. And to be clear, friends, we're all sinners. Justly deserving the wrath of God. So there exists within all of us a desperation for a savior. And friends, Jesus is that savior. And through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can know the forgiveness of sins. We can stand before a holy God justified. And we can enjoy the sure hope and promise of life everlasting. All because of what Jesus has done. So my plea, my question, is will you take God at his word this morning? Looking to Christ to be the savior of your soul? Or will you continue in your unbelief? Unbelief that would deceive you into believing that if only God would do, would do blank, then I would do blank. Which is a rather flawed logic. Because it's a logic that seeks to place the creator into subjection to that which he created. It's an attempt to put ourselves onto God's sovereign throne, revealing the audacity, not only of our unbelief, but our pride, that somehow we know better than the God who made all things. That despite forming us in our mother's womb, that despite giving us his word of promise, Despite sending us his one and only son, God still has yet more to prove in order to capture our devotion. That in order for me to take God at his word, I need X, Y, or Z. I need something that's bigger, better, and clearer than any sign that's come before it. And the tragedy of that incessant quest, the quest for just one more sign, God, if you would just do this, is that that is a quest that will never achieve that which it's set out to accomplish. Because no sign will ever be big enough, good enough, or clear enough to convince a doggedly unbelieving heart that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. For faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God, not by signs and wonders. What's all the more unsettling about this flawed logic? So often that same logic rears its ugly head in the hearts of believers. How that same tangle of unbelief floats to the surface in the mess of our own hearts as the people of God. Who at times can think to ourselves, you know, if God would just give us X, Y, or Z, then we would actually get serious about our faith. You know, if God would just give us a little more time, then we would pray more, read our Bibles more, fellowship with believers more, serve more. You know, if God would just give me that raise, if we could just pay off that loan, if we could just get out of debts, 
If we could just get the bank account or the 401k just a little bit higher, then maybe we could tithe what God demands. Then maybe we could actually be generous with our finances. You know, if God would just let us get to this or to that point in my career, or if we could just get through this one rough patch as a family, if only we could manage to arrive at a certain level of functionality, then we might finally be able to serve, to put our God-given gifts to use in the life of our church. If God only saw fit to bless us with a bigger house, a nicer house, then we would be hospitable. If God would give me a spouse, then I would be content. If only God would give us a child, then I would be more grateful. Then we would see his goodness. If only God would do X, then I would certainly do Y. You see, the terrifying and rather repugnant deception of that line of thinking is that ultimately my lack of faithfulness isn't really my fault. It's God's. Because he hasn't given me what I think I need in order to be faithful which is alive from the pit. So since Jesus has already ruffled our feathers a bit, what is it that keeps you from abiding in the means of grace? What is it that keeps you from tithing, from serving in the church, from entering into fellowship and body life, from being discipled and making disciples? How have we been bamboozled by a faulty, dangerous, and sin-warped logic like that of this evil generation from long ago. A logic that would seek to convince us that if only God would do X, then I would do Y. Brothers and sisters, the circumstances, the situations, and the frustrations of our lives are real. And at times they are significant. The challenges and suffering we face in a broken world can be utterly devastating. And the cherry on top of it all is that our limitations can at times seem legion. Yet our circumstances, our situations, and our limitations don't get to determine our faithfulness. They don't get to undercut the authority of God's word over our lives. No matter what we face, what we are called to be is faithful and to take God at his word. Even when it's hard, even when it proves difficult, uncomfortable, inconvenient, or when life gets messy. Because we have a God whose power is made perfect through weakness. A God who ministers to us and comforts us in all of our afflictions with Christ, our consolation. A God who has himself promised to supply our every need, who invites us to come and to make our request known to him, knowing that he is a God who gives good and gracious gifts yet also realizing that in Christ, at times, that which we lack is not actually what we need. So in those clamoring moments, 
those moments of struggle, those moments of doubt, those moments of unbelief, will we take God at his word? Will we trust him? Will we trust his provision and his providence at work in this world and in our lives? Would that every step of our lives be a step made in faith, trusting and obeying the word of our heavenly father? Well, to further expose their disingenuous demand, Jesus uses some rather irksome illustrations, which is our second point this morning. We see these irksome illustrations in verses 29 to 32. Jesus is addressing a crowd that is blind to the harrowing reality of its unbelief. So Jesus uses some shock and awe here. So this is meant to be a gut punch. It's meant to be a bit unsettling, disconcerting, and uncomfortable for us to hear. Because Jesus is standing smack dab in the middle of their blind spot. Trying to reveal to them the hard truth of their spiritual blindness. So Jesus utilizes two Old Testament references that would have been rather irksome and irritating. Because the crowd there that day um, would have been irked and irritated that these references included references to Gentiles. Specifically, occasions where Gentiles rightly responded to the word and the wisdom of God. Ultimately declaring that on the coming day of judgment, that Gentiles, that the men of Nineveh and the queen of the south, will rise up as witnesses for the prosecution and the judgment against the evils of this generation. For no further sign would be given, save for one, the sign of Jonah. So what was this sign of Jonah? And commentators' opinions differ a touch here and there, in part because in Matthew's account, in Matthew 12, 38 through 41, there is again, a reference to the sign of Jonah. And in Matthew's gospel, it's a reference to the resurrection of Jesus. That as Jonah spent three days in the fish, Jesus would spend three days in the tomb. Yet on the third day, he would rise again. Yet here in Luke, Jesus would seem to be using the same illustration, but in a different way and to convey a different point which is why there is no mention in our passage in Luke of Jonah's journey within the digestive tract of a fish. But what is mentioned is his preaching and the repentance of the men of Nineveh. And if you remember anything about Jonah's preaching, it's a sermon he really didn't want to preach to an audience that he wasn't particularly fond of. A sermon that was rather short and abrupt, And the sermon was this, yet 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. Drop the mic. That's it. That's a sermon. For reference, none of my preaching professors uh, would have given that sermon high marks. Yet God graciously and wondrously used that sermon to transform a city. Because the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. See, in hearing the word of God from the mouth of Jonah, the men of Nineveh believed God and repented of their sinful ways. 
from the least to the greatest. They did exactly what God's people should have been doing. And that frustrated Jonah to no end. Because Jonah knew that this was a sign of God's judgment upon his people. See, God had sent his people prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, yet they weren't listening, much less repenting. Yet after preaching a less than stellar sermon, revival breaks out amongst the people of Nineveh. You see, the men of Nineveh realized that God had spoken and that they needed to listen. That now was not the time for bargaining for more evidence, for more proof. Now was the time to believe God and take him at his word. And they did. Whereas the people of God anchored deeply into their apathy and unbelief, ignored both God and his word. And that's why on the day of judgment, the men of Nineveh will serve as living proof, as the evidence that God had revealed all that was necessary for life and godliness. That he had revealed more than enough for his people to believe that Jesus was the Christ. And the question for us is, will we? Will we take God at his word? Will we hear and heed God's word, repenting of our sin and turning to God? Will we obey him day by day? by day and moment by moment, trusting his provision and walking in faithfulness? Or will we be just like that crowd, demanding yet one more additional sign? But Jonah's not the only reference Jesus makes in our passage this morning. He also refers to the queen of the south, otherwise known as the queen of Sheba, a queen we are introduced to in 1 Kings 10, And 2 Chronicles 9, a pagan and Gentile queen who traveled from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Here was a queen who had a hunger, a drive, and a desire for the truth, for the wisdom of God. So when she began to hear the whispers and the rumors of a wise king named Solomon... She saddled up her camels and she made the long, arduous journey to Jerusalem in order that she might hear and learn the wisdom of God. You see, the queen of the south recognized true wisdom when she heard it. And now Jesus is declaring that something even greater than Solomon has appeared, yet mired in their unbelief. This evil generation ignores the God who literally stands before them. In both of these examples, it is those with limited information, those who are far from God, those unaware of the riches of his great and glorious promises. Yet it is they who respond in faith to the word of God. It is they whose lives are flipped and turned upside down by the grace and the glory of God. Whereas the tragedy of our passage is that those who were nearest to God seem to be the furthest from him. That from their infancy they had been taught the truths of God's word. That they had heard the promises of God. Promises that would be fulfilled, that would find their yes and their amen in the very man standing before them. 
yet devastatingly. It is they who are blind, unaware, indifferent, and ultimately lost in the ignorance of their pride and unbelief. Friends, what we do with the word of God matters. A casual flippancy towards the commands and calls of God is no light or trivial matter. So the question becomes, how will we respond to the word of God? What will our response be to this Jesus? Which leads us to our third and our concluding point this morning. The enlightened response. How are we to respond to Jesus? Well, in verses 33 to 36, Jesus would encourage us to examine our eyesight. Can we see or can we not? And if the Lord has given us the eyes to see his beauty, then the question is, where are our blind spots? We need to examine our lives to see if we are living like Jesus is the light of the world. That he is the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. For the life of faith is not a life of compartmentalization. That's what Jesus is getting at in verse 33 when he says, No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand. Accordingly, if Jesus is who he says he is, then the truth of that reality legitimately changes everything about everything. And our lives should bear the fruit of that reality. For he is a light so glorious that he gets to permeate and to pour his revealing yet healing rays into every square inch. And even the darkest corners of our lives. Yet compartmentalization is a temptation within us all to submit to God in bits and pieces rather than in the whole. For each of us, there are certain areas of life, faith and godliness that are easier to relinquish to the reign and rule of Christ than others. Yet if Jesus redeemed it all, he gets it all. The good, the bad, and the mess in between. For when Jesus died for us, he died for every bit of us. His is a light for all of life. Not merely for our Sunday mornings. Not merely for our daily quiet times. Not merely for Wednesday nights but for all of life. What we need to see then, what we need to behold then, what we need to believe then, is that there is not a corner nor a cubby hole of our lives that belongs to us. If we are in Christ, there is not a place that is off limits to him. Not a spot where Jesus doesn't get to say, that's mine. From your singleness, to your marriage, to your money, to your kids, to your weekends, to your Lord's Day, to your career goals, to your gifts, to your skills, to your hobbies and talents. Every single bit of you and every single bit of me 
belongs to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we are his to wield for his kingdom and for his glory. So the question is, are we living our lives in the light of the light of the world? Are we beholding Jesus, the Savior of our souls, in the the light of our lives? In other words, what is it that guides your steps and illuminates your days? Is it the light of your own competence? The light of your own intelligence, the light of your own diligence, or has a greater light shone into the depths of your life? This is what Jesus is getting at here in verse 36. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus is the greater light that guides that governs and that grows us in the bounties of grace and the glories of faith. As we seek to surrender unto him every square inch of the life that he has redeemed from out of the deep dark darkness and has brought into his most marvelous light. And in verse 33, the light of Jesus is a light that is not merely for our own benefit, but also for all those who enter may see the light. That's why the light of your faith, the light of your obedience unto the Lord, the light of Christ at work in your life, isn't to be locked up in the cellar, but that those about you, from your family to your friends and neighbors, co-workers and even strangers might behold the light of the world shining and shimmering through your life. For we have been given a gift, the gift of faith, the gift of eyes that can see and behold the glory and the grace of God. Not that we might keep it to ourselves, but in order that we might share that same light with all that we encounter. Because in a world full of darkness, we have been called to be beacons of his great and glorious light. That when others encounter us, that we might reflect and refract the glories of his grace at work within us. Yet the life of faith is a journey. A long obedience in the same direction and along the way in this calling we can often grow weary and tired. Sometimes from the extraordinary difficulties of faith, like persecution, but more often than not, from the ordinary, everyday struggles of faith. And knowing that we would struggle, our gracious Savior gave us this table that he might nourish our faith and shine the light of his most glorious grace into the depths of our souls, that anchored and steadied by his grace, that we might endure and endeavor on in faith, looking to Jesus, the light of the world and the light of our lives. If you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, into the darkness the light has come.
Oh, Father, that you might give us the eyes to behold, to see, and to experience the warmth, the hope, and the light of your countenance shining down upon us. Please grant us the eyes to see, the faith to believe, that we might walk through this life basking in the glorious rays of your grace, a grace that you have so lavishly poured down upon us through the finished work of of Jesus and the sealing work of your spirit. Feed us and fuel us as we come to this table that our souls might feast upon Christ. May we once again glimpse your glory and be gripped by your grace. This we pray.